This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about talking about climate. We take a crack at intersectional, justice-oriented media criticism for climate coverage. I'm Amy Westervelt. Right, and I'm Mariana East Hegler. As we mentioned in our last episode, we're gearing up to going bi-weekly in 2020, but we're going to spend the rest of 2019 taking a look back at the past few years and how much climate storytelling has changed recently, because it really has, right? Oh my God, yeah. I remember when you could barely even say climate in a story, <laughs> and it's really, it's true, <laughs> and it's really changed a lot, specifically in the Frump era, and, and we wanted to do a recap of the whole Frump era, but we'd be here forever, so we're going to break it up a little. Yeah. Yeah, we really would. In this episode, we're going to focus on 2016 and 2017. And next episode, we'll do 2018 in review. And then we'll do an episode on 2019. Then it'll be 2020 and we'll be every two weeks. Try to think of these recap episodes as sort of snippets. We're humble enough to know that there's no way that we got our hands on all the great climate writing that's out there. Exactly. And if there's something we missed from 2016 and 2017 that you thought should have been discussed, please tweet at us. We're at Real Hot Take, and we're bound to miss some great stuff. That's right. Okay, should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires, and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DROPED. This holiday season, get a gift 
for yourself too and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. 40 Go to com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. So, Mary, how was your 2016? Not great, Amy. How was yours? Really fucking sucked, to be honest. It really sucked. It really did. Actually, yeah. like, I felt like I, uh-huh, it ahead. was like a, like a year long hangover. Yes. Um, Actually yeah. in 2016, I found myself waking up with more existential dread than I do now. Yeah. To believe it or not. Actually climate is a big part of what has been very, very wrong with this presidency, but it like, it it was like barely even discussed in any of the no. debates no. in the primary at all. Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember that debate? And it was all about that that one guy in that red sweater that was like undecided between Hillary and Donald Trump. Yeah, and this is like yes. real late in the election, and everybody became obsessed with him. And it was like not yes. one word about climate in these debates that I can recall. I do remember being like really happy when Bernie Sanders brought it up in one of the debates. Mm -hmm. It was like his opening statement. I was like, beautiful. I know. And even, I feel like even the environmental reporters were not talking that much about what he would do to roll back Mm -hmm. any kind of regulations on the oil industry. Um, You know, he, he, uh, talked about withdrawing from Paris as like part of his one of his campaign promises. Oh yeah, and I feel like nobody nobody took that seriously. No one took at it all. seriously. What's disturbing yeah. is that I see those exact same people now who were so dismissive and so smug in 2016 being just as dismissive and just as smug today. And it's like, do you yes. not learn? Right? Like, I think the rule should be if you laughed more than you cried in 2016. You need to listen yeah. more than you talk in 2020. That is the fucking rule. Yeah, that is a great rule. You know, kind of um, in keeping with our subject here, which <laughs> is climate coverage. Yeah, there was a huge shift in climate coverage mm-hmm. from 2016 to 2017, and oh I my think gosh. yeah, 
you know, the election definitely played into it. And some of the pieces that we're going to talk about today certainly did too. Yeah. So when I was doing the research for this episode, I was struck by a a lot of stuff. First of all, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me is that I was still seeing a lot of articles that were relying really heavily on the individual action frame. Um, mm-hmm. which now I, I don't feel like I see that as much anymore. Um, it's, it's far more widely accepted that we need collective action, that we need political action, that this is the fault of industries and corporations. But when mm-hmm. I was looking for articles from 2016, that wasn't all the, what I was finding. I was finding a lot of like, you should recycle and you should compost and you should like cut your carbon footprint in these different ways. And even the ways I was seeing for people to cut their carbon footprints were really like not even the biggest things you could do as individuals. I wasn't seeing as much about like stopping flying. It was more about like what you do as a consumer on the day-to-day level, which I found that really interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It was still really like around just like buying different stuff mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. like, the key. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you're a consumer, not a citizen. But we know that that's not yeah. true. I know. I feel like some of the pieces in 2016 were um, like the ones that did talk about climate straight on and talked about, you know, um, and were kind of some of among some of the earlier ones talking about the path that we we're on and what that might look like and all of that were like eerily prescient. Yes. I, like yeah. just... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. for example, ProPublica did this story on Houston's perfect storm. Um, and yeah. it pretty much predicts Hurricane Harvey. With Yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah. the little map that they have <laughs> yes. where it's like, and then there's these chemical plants. And if they get hit, I was like, oh, my God. Right. They, like, all of it happened, like, not that long after exactly came out. And it's like, look at uh, science predicting yeah. the future <laughs> um, in a very eerie way. Um, and another yeah. one that had that effect for me, I want to read a little bit from, it's by Jeff Goodall. Um, and the title is, Can New York Be Saved in the Era of Global Warming? Which I highly recommend everybody going back to read. Oh, this gives me a chance to debut our new sound effect for reading excerpts. Here it is. If it's going to survive, fortifying New York will require more than just walls. It will require a radical rethinking of the relationship between the city and the people who live in it. If the central role of government is to keep people safe, what happens when people realize they are not? What is the government's role in keeping people out of harm's way? How does the government compensate people whose properties are underwater? The Dutch architect who led the team that designed the Blue Dunes and who has done as much thinking about how to live with water as anyone compares sea level rise to other transformative catastrophes, such as the Dust Bowl, a partly man-made natural disaster that profoundly changed the geography of America and also expanded the role that government plays in ensuring the long-term welfare of even the most vulnerable people. We're going to need a new deal, he says. It's going to require a rethinking of the social construct contract in America. Um, does that remind you yeah. of anything happening right now, Amy? Anything at all? I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I know. Yeah, so I found that um, that piece super interesting. Um, another thing I was seeing when I was looking back was um, that we were just starting to put the pieces together around 
climate refugees as it relates to, you know, these waves of migrants coming from Latin America and really all over the world. Um, that was like, I, I don't remember, I started seeing climate refugees as a term in 2017. I didn't see it so much in 2016 in, in a lot of journalism. And again, might have missed some stuff. Well, it's interesting because climate refugees was a big thing in like 2009. Mm -hmm. And then it totally like disappeared. You know, there was this... Hmm. Um, there were all these stories about in um, in the run up to the Copenhagen climate summit. There were all of these stories about the Maldives and about Tuvalu. And there were activists that were there, you know, like holding signs up about like our or, like we're going to be underwater soon. And, mm, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then in the U.S. there was the indigenous village of Kivalina in Alaska um, that actually was one of the first big lawsuits against fossil fuel companies um, because their village was disappearing oh. because of glacier melt and sea level rise. And that was in um, 2009, 2010-ish. So there was like a bunch of stories around it. And it was also the first time you started hearing about climate reparations. Like that actually started to come up around Copenhagen. And then it just like totally disappeared within a year. The whole you know like... Why? Well, I it was mostly because of the climate gate scandal. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you remember. This, I don't remember climate like, gate, and this is one of those things like I see so people talk wild. about a lot, and I'm like afraid oh. to ask. Okay, okay. So this is it was it was wild because it was basically like a a quote unquote hack of the climate of like a bunch of high level IPCC climate scientists so climate scientists who were working on the intergovernmental panel on climate changes like annual reports and like all of that stuff around 2008 2009 okay. and in in like the the months leading up to the Copenhagen climate summit which was in 2009 um there were all these leaks of emails and they were totally like, it was all like this completely manufactured scandal where it was like, you know, gotcha scientists. Like, you know, turns out like they're also, they're still really uncertain about climate change oh, and they're boy. like colluding to try to make it seem like they're more sure than they are. And it, you know, kind of took like bits and pieces of people's emails and, um, and cobbled them together to, to create this non scandal, but it was enough. Like, I mean, at that time, the, um, we had Obama in office and Congress was in control of Democrats. And so it was the, f the first time in recent history, kind of since Kyoto, that there was a real chance that we might have like a binding global climate treaty. Mm -hmm. And so the fossil fuel guys were going freaking nuts. Like the, the spending on ads and lobbying and all that stuff is just like mm -hmm. off the charts in the lead up to Copenhagen. And then here comes climate gate. And like, honestly, it's totally one of those things where you're like, how did this work? Cause it was so obviously bogus and it was like clownish, but it worked. And it was, it was like the thing that was, it was actually like a really key kind of modern turning point on climate action where like, it really seemed like something was going to happen. And there again, it's like, there were a ton of youth activists, mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is why sometimes too now when people are like, oh, if we just get Democrats in charge, it'll be fine. I'm like, well, history says no. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, what I, mean? and I think it's also like why <sighs> yeah. we see on the on the well, I, I wouldn't call us 
call it the far left, like people who want to preserve the planet. I don't think that's far anything. Right. Um, but you see right. a lot of folks like in the environmental space and the climate space looking at cl- at candidates for office really hard. And I think it's, there's right. a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, trauma or like broken promises. Yeah. Um, people yeah. who have really like Baggage. thought that they were going to get yeah. somewhere at some point and then finding out that they're absolutely not going to get somewhere. And it's just really hard to have right. um, to believe in political power. Yeah. In case you hear some hissing in the background, I have a very old apartment with a very old heater, which means I'm very lucky to have heat, but I can't control this fucking thing. And it's loud. It's like, it's a literal hot take right now. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but yeah, another one of the trends that I saw in the research for this show that actually kind of cracked me up in a very sad way was all of these mm. people still thinking that Donald Trump might become presidential. Do you remember oh, right. this? Like he was going to rise to exactly. the occasion. Exactly. Yes. Like this. Remember Van Jones's whole like yeah. this is the night he became president. Like oh, I still haven't. Oh my god. I have not gotten over that yet. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. But I, totally. I was seeing this totally. a lot in the in the articles about the cop that year, the cop of 2016, mm-hmm. which was held in Morocco. COP is short for Conference of Parties. It's the decision-making body responsible for monitoring and reviewing the implementation of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But when people say things like, you know, the COP in Morocco or the COP in Copenhagen, they mostly refer to these global climate conventions where representatives from various countries are trying to come up with a global treaty. The COP has met annually since 1995. So that's how long people have been trying to get some sort of global agreement on climate policy. (laughs) The Kyoto Protocol was the first agreement to come out of a COP that seemed like it could actually move the needle globally on climate change. It was torpedoed by the efforts of industry and various Republican groups. And George W. Bush pulled out of it officially in 2001. And the only one that has been drafted and actually stuck is the one that was written in Paris. And then, of course, the United States pulled out of it. Um, I saw a lot of articles saying like, oh, he might rise to the occasion. And then I was also seeing these articles that were saying that um, the U.S. was going to become a pariah state um, and that Donald Trump's attitude toward the climate might turn out to be a good thing by motivating everyone else to take action. And we know how that turned out. Um, But it just it almost seemed like people weren't even believing it when they were saying it. They just sort of had to find some silver lining somewhere. (laughs) Find something. Yeah. 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 Speaking of outrage. um, Remember Scott Pruitt? Who? (laughs) Scott Pruitt, Jeff Sessions, Rex fucking Tillerson. Oh, Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson. I, I, my, what I will never, ever, ever forgive him for is making Rex Tillerson not that bad of a guy. Like, I remember there, there was one point where, like, he seemed like the adult in the room. Like, Rex Tillerson is going to save us. And I was like, what kind of gas-lit-ass shit is this? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Rex Tillerson, whose who's like most recent public appearance was testifying in the Exxon fraud trial, um, 
<laughs> like during about the time that, you know, he was CEO of Exxon as they were like lying about climate change impacts. Um, yeah, I mean that guy. And then Scott Pruitt and his um and his his secret phone booth. Oh my Do you remember we, that? I feel yeah. like I don't I can't remember if that came out. I, that probably hadn't come out yet in 2016. No, no, it, it, no, it came out like, in 2017 because Scott Pruitt was out of office oh the God. summer of 2017. He did not last long. Oh all of this shit happened really, really fast. And that's why we all have whiplash now. But yes. as much yeah. as the climate yeah. story sucked, I got to say that we started yeah. to see some real strides in climate storytelling from 2016 yes. to 2017. And Starting with December of 2016, there was this flurry of major climate coverage. Um, it sort of seemed like once Donald Trump was elected, there was just a rush to cover the subject and take it a lot more seriously. Like I was seeing article after article after article in really big news um, organizations. Um, it was also a really big year for climate fiction. Mm -hmm. That's the year um, Amy Brady's first climate fiction column came out in the Chicago Review of Books. So I think that was mm -hmm. a pretty big milestone. Yeah, totally. That was huge. Because before that, I feel like, you know, cli-fi uh, climate fiction existed, but it was sort of like a, it was just, it was kind of like a niche thing. And honestly, okay, so there was one guy that pitched me on cli-fi for like years like starting 10 15 years ago and he always just seemed like a little bit nutty you know? <laughs> so and I, I feel like to, uh 2017 was sort of the year that climate fiction like became a real thing yeah with like it kind of matured know, just like a variety of types of stories yeah. and like yeah it did it matured yeah, and I, totally. I think that I think so also was the year that um the great derangement came out mm -hmm. uh which yes. is um Amitav Ghosh's uh really great essay collection about why is climate not in all of our storytelling as it was published in 2016 yes. so you know, yeah kind of in the same same time yeah. frame 2017 was also the year that we started to see more people talking about how we talk about climate change, um, especially on the emotional and psychological front. Um, Dr. Renee Lertzman has been talking about that for a long time, and she wrote a piece in Sierra Magazine called How Can We Talk About Global Warming? Oh, I haven't read it's that. It's time for the climate story. Yes. Beyond Hope and Fear. You know, she wrote a book a little while back called Environmental Melancholia that was sort of talking about tackling climate grief and then and then yeah has kind of focused on this space of of the psychology of environmental news for a while anyway I feel I feel like 2017 we start to actually see more of these kinds of conversations start to emerge in the coverage on climate which we hadn't been yeah necessarily seeing much of yeah before. and the the range of emotions which means the range of language got much yes. much much bigger and yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a groundbreaking year for for climate coverage a lot of people did some really amazing work before we get like too far like i think we also got to recap some of these events because a lot of shit happened in yes, 2017. There was so much happening. So much yeah. shit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Donald Trump and his fucking goons, like, come into office and with a straight goddamn face, were like, you know what? 
fuck y'all, y'all clean water and your clean air and your fucking. <laughs> We got to get rid of the EPA. Right. Yeah. Right. We're going to poison ourselves mm-hmm. to own the fucking libtards. They just like did this shit. Like they pulled out of Paris. They straight up tried to eliminate the EPA. They deregulated mm-hmm. every fucking thing. Totally. I know the guy that was in charge of the EPA transition team for Trump is this guy named Steve Malloy, who has been basically trying to kill the EPA since it was formed. <laughs> The moment that haunts my dream the most is when he pulled out of Paris and he had like that big reception on the Rose Garden and it was crazy fucking hot. And there was a band that played the whole time. Yeah. And it just felt so much like the Titanic. Another big political event um, going on in also 2016 and 2017 was Standing Rock. And I've got two pieces that Mm -hmm. I want to talk about from that. First, I want to acknowledge that there was some really great coverage on Standing Rock from Unicorn Riot and Mother Jones. I think they might have teamed up, actually. Um, Yeah, yeah, they were great. Yeah, yeah, Unicorn Riot, like, covered every second of it. It was really fantastic and really brave um, because they were really, it it got extraordinarily violent. Um, on the part of the state. Yeah, against protesters. Yeah. Yes, no, it, totally. I know. And the piece I want to read from is the eviction letter to the Army Corps of Engineers by Harold Fraser of, of the Sioux Nation. I take your letter as issuing a direct and irresponsible threat to the water protectors. It appears to further empower the militarized police force that has been brutalizing and terrorizing our water protectors while imposing the blame and the risk on unarmed peaceful people. We have pleaded for the protection of the United States. Your letter makes a grave and dangerous mistake. Federal efforts to de-escalate the violence should be aimed at the wrongdoers, not at our peaceful people. And I just wanted to read that piece in, in the words of someone actually on the ground there of the disproportionate violence and the disproportionate blame for that violence because they would straight do stuff that was caught on camera, claim they didn't do it, and then the footage came out. And it was like, oh, they just straight up lied. And it was just such a far cry from what you see at most, like, climate marches or or Earth Day, you know, demonstrations. And what happens basically when it's mostly white people. Right. Yeah. And actually this Standing Rock, I mean, I think it's really important for people to kind of like look back at these stories and we'll post links to these in the show notes because this is the origin of what we're seeing now where you have pipeline companies working with groups like ALEC, which like writes, you know, legislation that that they then just give to politicians and actually passing laws that criminalize protests. This was the thing that made them kind of start thinking this way, that we really have to crack down on these protests because guess what? If oil companies don't have access to as much cheap indigenous land as they want, which is pretty much like what they've done for decades, they this whole thing of running pipelines this way and that way all over the country and between Canada and the U.S. and wherever doesn't work anymore. Right. And where these pipelines go, missing indigenous yes. women tends to happen. Yes. Right? Yes. 
Yes. You end up with these things that they call man camps, which are like the giant camps of, you know, workers. And there's a huge incidence of women being assaulted, battered, raped, gone missing, murdered, all of that. So it's like there's um, it happens as a result of protests. Sometimes it happens just as a result of there being like large groups of men isolated in an area where there aren't that many women and they kind of take women, you know? Um, Right. And it's not just like they take women, they take very vulnerable, unprotected women, women who are marginalized and who they know the police don't care about basically. Right. Um, Right. That they, it won't be tracked and they won't be prosecuted and like, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other piece I wanted to read from is by Julian Brave Noisecat in The Guardian. Um, it's called I Was Arrested for Protesting. And the reason I, I wanted to read from this, so Julian is um, an indigenous man um, from, I believe, Canada by way of California. And so for me, in the wake of the Trump election, it was like, oh my God, like this, this needs to be taken more seriously. I started to take like direct action a lot more seriously. Whereas before it was like, I would never, ever, ever go to prison on, or go to jail Mm. on purpose. Um, And so it like, wasn't something I ever thought about as a black woman. And then after he was elected, it was like, oh, maybe that's something I need to start considering. Um, And so, yeah, exactly. Like maybe it's come to that. Mm -hmm. And so I was really drawn to this essay because he does make that choice as, as a man of color um, to go to jail on purpose. And he's also, um, he's doing his protests in New York city, but is also tied to standing wrong. My upbringing, idealism, and outrage did not prepare me for the experience of arrest. In the pad wagon, with my arms zip-tied behind my back, I felt guilt, regret, and fear. My body was no longer my own. My time belonged to someone else. My mother was worried half to death. My future job prospects were diminished. I, an Ivy League graduate, now had assumed the guise of yet another young man of color with a criminal record. Very real consequences descended from extraction into the land of hard facts. Down here, they felt heavy. My girlfriend, who faithfully waited up all night on the street outside the jail for my release, was exhausted and annoyed. Why did you do that, she asked. I mustered a zealous response filled with youthful conviction, but deep down, I was asking myself the same thing. I mean, the full essay is really great. (laughs) Yeah, I think this idea that like, A, that it's like time to take a stand and B, that like, yes, it might cost you something is really important. And it costs some people more than it costs others. Um, And so I just want to take a second to talk about the writing of Julian's piece, because so I I get really annoyed when I meet people who know me from, you know, something I've written and they think they meet me and they think I'm in my 20s because I'm like, I'm too good of a writer to be in my 20s. And then I read people like Julian, (laughs) who's like, you know, he is in his 20s. And he's like a really fucking good writer. And it's like, oh, right. You couldn't write like that in your 20s. That doesn't mean someone else can. Um, But one of the things I love that he does here is the way that he treats the women, even in these just like couple of sentences here. The women that he talks about here are complicated. 
Um, and he writes for them in a way that they feel like real people, even in this just couple of sentences. Like you can't, first of all, his girlfriend's a real one for waiting outside, but also is like a real person <laughs> because she's not like this devoted person. Like she's actually like, I could slap you right now. Yeah, and that's like, just such a real moment. Yes. Yes. yes yeah. Totally. And his mother being worried to death right. too. I'm like, yeah, that feels real. Yeah, yeah. I could just see that phone call where it's like, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it really worth it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I love that piece. I feel like in addition to all of these political events that were happening, the other thing that was kind of the signal breaking through noise on climate change in 2016, 2017 was just the number and severity of disasters. Like they're just coming at us hot and heavy and like one right after the other. Right, right. Um, There were, just to like name a few, there were these really devastating landslides in Colombia and Sierra Leone in 2017. Um, really right. historic flooding in Louisiana and China in 2016. And then, of course, there, were, there was that horrible slew of um, hurricanes in 2017, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Um, and also right. Hurricane Matthew in 2016 was really horrible. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, um, as a lifelong Californian, about the wildfires in yeah. those years. The wildfires, yeah, 2016 was the first year that people kind of, like, admitted that it's no longer wildfire season. It's just all year round. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was just unbelievable, you know, and it was another year. I think it was, like, you know, the third year in a row that was, like, the hottest year on record Mm -hmm. with the most Mm -hmm. wildfires and the most acres burned. And, like, you know, just it was – it was – uh, it was relentless yeah. and it's only, it's kind of, it was kind of the year too that like you started to hear, um, firemen and like the Cal fire chief talking a lot about how this was climate change. Um, there was a guy who was the Cal fire chief then his name's Ken Pimlaw and he, I think he just retired last year, but he like, start, he made the rounds of all the like local morning news shows in California. And he straight up said, like, I've been a firefighter for 30 years. Like, conditions have changed because of climate change. <laughs> and, and like, it's no longer a season. This is year round. Yeah, um, which you, so was unheard was a, of. That was a big deal. That was unheard of in 2014, yeah. 2015, which yeah. is not yeah, that long totally. ago, right? Like, you couldn't even say no. wildfire and climate change in the same And you time. certainly weren't seeing, like, a bunch of firemen saying it. You definitely were not getting, like, the, the fire chief on, you know, like, good morning L.A. <laughs> talking about it, you know? Yeah. So the other big, um, huge disaster I wanted to talk about in a little bit more des- uh, detail was Hurricane Maria. Um, which Mm -hmm. I I mean, I can still remember those images quite harrowingly. Um, I remember, um, just seeing a storm of that size, like it looked terrifying just on the radar. I remember seeing the the pictures from space and it just seemed like a continent moving across the ocean. Um, and I think what's important to remember um, about how it was able to devastate Puerto Rico so harshly is not only just Maria itself, is that it came on the heels of Irma. 
And that meant that Puerto Rico right. had just accepted lots and lots of people seeking refuge from the neighboring islands. Um, and so resources mm-hmm. were already depleted. Things were already running scarce. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think it was the longest, it's the longest blackout in U.S. history. I don't remember how long it lasted. Yeah. And I would not be surprised to find out there are places in Puerto Rico that are still suffering uh, from blackouts yeah. or unreliable energy at the very least. Um, and they very much like, yeah. I actually have been doing some reporting in Puerto Rico and they, um, I mean, it was crazy. Like the vast majority of people uh, that hurricane hit in September of 2017 and the vast majority of people did not have power until like Christmas time in December. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's nuts yeah. if you think about that. And, and I feel like there's this way that people talk about it here where it's like, Oh well, a couple months, Puerto Rico. It's sunny and tropical. It's fine. You know what I mean? Uh, but it's no, like no, no, not at all. That's not no. Yeah, and also it was it was this thing where um, this is actually there's an interesting um, thing in Puerto Rico where they they started doing this hashtag a while back that's like I think it's hashtag forty five hundred or something like that because they. Um, even before the like ridiculously low death tolls were upgraded to, you know, close to 3000 people, um, people in Puerto Rico were saying that it's way more than that because you had all of these kind of slow deaths where there were tons of people who didn't have access Mm -hmm. to medication that they needed or, um, treatment that they needed. I talked to this one woman who, um, her dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer like a month before Maria hit. Mm. He was supposed to start his treatment the day that it hit. Mm-hmm. Couldn't start it for four months, and it and it was too late. Yeah. By then, they were like, "Oh, you can't like it's pa- the time for treatment has passed." No, there's all so, these like, ripple that effects. Kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, I I want to totally. read from this piece by Eric Holthouse in Gris and Mother Jones. I think they might have teamed up for this. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. gets into some of these ripple effects. Um, so the title is "This is how Puerto Ricans are talking about climate change." And what he did for this piece, he's like he did a little bit of framing up top, but what he really did was interview folks in Puerto Rico or who had people in Puerto Rico. Um, as part of the diaspora to talk about their experiences and just quoted them verbatim, um, which I thought was a really great approach, especially at that point in time. Um, So here's some of the snippets from that piece. It's the first time I saw pictures and it's absolutely horrifying. For the past week, our only way of learning what was happening around us was through the radio. They kept mentioning the word disaster and your mind would create scenarios, but in no way does it compare to the absolutely heartbreaking reality. Another person says, how do you rebuild a whole island? I don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. Another one says, one thing that's happening is people are saying, if you have a phone and you have a signal, just take a picture of people and say, PR, we are okay. Just post it on social media and hopefully it will arrive to whoever knows that person. And the last person says, we've been desperately trying to find out, find a flight out for my grandmother with Alzheimer's, who's in a nursing home in precarious conditions. I fortunately managed to get a flight for my grandmother this Friday to my aunt's house in the U.S., only to find that airlines keep canceling pre-sold flights because airplanes would have to fly over empty, and no one knows when the airport will actually open to commercial airlines. 
They keep pushing the date mm. and officials' info is scarce. Millions of vulnerable people are stranded. It's... Yeah, it's... It, all yeah. of these... It was really... All of these, like, mm-hmm. ripple effects that you don't think about. And yeah. reading this, like, I, I don't want to center myself in the story, but, like, so much of it spoke to me of my experience in Katrina, which again was not in New Orleans. I was not on the front lines of the the worst parts of Katrina by any stretch of the imagination, but I related so hard to this idea of the the only way you knew what was happening was through the radio. (laughs) And remembering listening to the radio with like, you know, your ears all the way perked up, just hoping you're going to find something out and like the hopelessness of just post a picture and maybe it'll get to somebody almost like a a message in a bottle. We should probably go into um, what what we've been calling our foundational pieces of these of 2016-2017 and kind of what we mean by that is like these were some of the most influential pieces of that year or they tied together a lot of themes um, for that year so I think it's pretty uh, unequivocal probably the biggest piece uh, related to climate for 2017 uh, was The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells in New York Magazine Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to start there and I've got to make a confession, <laughs> which is that I did not read this article when it came out. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a bad person for that, um, but I have reasons. OK, I did not read the article when it came out because like we were saying at the top of the episode, look, 2017 was rough. It was a real rough year. It was the year that my climate grief kind of like spiraled back into shock. And I Mm. couldn't handle it, okay? Like I couldn't handle that there was this article out there making these really big waves and really showing you what climate change was going to look like. And like, I remember people talking to me about it and telling me I really needed to read it and they would describe it for two seconds. I'm like, oh, I don't need to see my nightmare on a page right now. I don't think I can handle that. Right. <laughs> like That's what I see right. when I close my eyes. I don't need to see it written down on a piece of paper. I don't think I can, you know, wake right. up in the morning if I've seen that. So I right. avoided it, to be quite honest. And uh, I don't know if David is listening to this, but I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I did yeah. read it in preparation for the show. And I, I've got to say, like, reading it with 2019 eyes is really um, an interesting experience. Um, I liked it quite a lot. And that's probably a reflection of me being in a better place with my climate grief. Um, so I'm just going to mm-hmm. read um, my favorite excerpt now. Surely this blindness will not last. The world we are about to inhabit will not permit it. In a six degree warmer world, the Earth's ecosystem will boil with so many natural disasters that we will just start calling them weather. A constant swarm of out of control typhoons and tornadoes and floods and droughts. The planet assaulted regularly with climate events that not so long ago destroyed whole civilizations. The strongest hurricanes will come more often and we'll have to invent new categories with which to describe them. 
Tornadoes will grow long, longer and wider and strike much more frequently, and hail rocks will quadruple in size. Humans used to watch the weather to prophesy the future. Going forward, we will see in its wrath the vengeance of the past. Early naturalists often talked often about deep time, the perception they had contemplating the grandeur of this valley or that rock basin, of the profound slowness of nature. What lies in store for us is more like what the Victorian anthropologists identified as dream time or every when, the semi-mythical experience described by Aboriginal Australians of encountering in the present moment an out-of-time past when ancestors, heroes, and demigods crowded an epic stage. You can find it already watching footage in an ice, of an iceberg collapsing into the sea, a feeling of history happening all at once. It is. So I feel <sighs> like <laughs> yeah. somebody issued a dare to him to be like, make a data dump, but make it poetic. <laughs> I, I feel like the, the really important thing about this piece, too, was that it kicked off like a shitstorm mm-hmm. in the climate media mm-hmm. universe where a bunch of climate scientists actually got really mad at David Wallace Wells and sort of accused him of being like irresponsible yeah. for telling people that this was like how bad it could get, yeah. which was super strange because it was sort of like if you'd been following climate for a while at that point, like you already knew this, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing I think about, like I know that the Twitter brawl over this wasn't massive. Like it was a really big fight and having, you know, been at the center of a Twitter fight that I assume was much, much smaller. I know it was much, much smaller than this. Is like what I think people don't remember about the person they're dragging or attacking on Twitter is that it's a person. But then it was also very much like, you know, it was a little bit of a, a gatekeeping thing and whatever. But I do feel like in doing this, he, and I think because you know, he was, he's the deputy editor of New York magazine and he's a straight white guy and he is someone with like, you know, a fair amount of influence and platform and all of that kind of stuff. It really opened the floodgates for just other types of climate writing. Right. In a, in, I think a really important way, right. you know, and that's what uh, another thing to, to note though, is that I don't know that, um, anyone else could have weathered the storm that he weathered, um, who was not, you know, a straight white guy with whatever amount of privilege, right? Like, I don't think a woman of color could have opened those floodgates, right? And I think about that um, with my own writing, right? Because I talk about fear or, or about climate change with a different emotional range than I think was allowed before the uninhabitable earth, right? I also want to draw attention to something else I loved about this article is that he he acknowledges the impacts of colonialism and how that spread this infrastructure of extraction around the world. Um, and that is something that um, I don't remember seeing in a lot of pieces, certainly not in these like established uh, outlets, um, certainly not by a lot of white guys. Um, and it's really important to hear white guys telling that side of the story and giving it legitimacy and giving it legs, which is like, it fucking sucks that we need white guys to do that. But to the extent that we need them, um, it's good to see them doing it. 
And even as much as I was avoiding this article when it came out, I couldn't avoid it. It was that big of an, of an influence. And one of the things that happened right. in my off Twitter experience that was super freaking annoying was like all of these people who had kind of relegated me as the obnoxious, hysterical person at the dinner party all of a sudden wanted to talk mm -hmm. to me about climate. And it was like, oh, oh that's, so that's so cool, Dennis. You read an article in a magazine written by a complete <laughs> fucking stranger that you've never met. Um, and he talks about climate change, but you take him seriously, but you don't take me seriously, even though you've known me for a goddamn decade. Cool. Yes. So fucking cool. Yes. That mm -hmm. <laughs> really pissed me off. But also, like, at, at the yeah. same time, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad that person got climate woke. I'm pissed off that it took, you know, someone you don't know to wake you up. But that is a personal vendetta. Yeah. Dennis and I are working through that. Okay. <laughs> Dennis. Fucking Dennis. The, chain, <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the innocent. But still. <laughs> Sit down, Dennis. We need a shirt. <laughs> But no, like I, um, yeah, it was, a, it was hard not to take notice of this article it, um, and the influence that it's had yeah. ever since. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I was totally. not on, I was not on Twitter, let alone climate Twitter at the time. And I knew that there was like a Twitter oh. brawl happening over this article. There was, yeah. there was a lot of, you know, there were, yeah. So I've. I have I've been on Twitter like a ridiculously long time. As most journalists <laughs> because are. Because when I mean, yeah, a journalist also like I was in San Francisco when Twitter launched. Oh, so like look at you. you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a lot of I I feel like the early stages of Twitter, it was like there were a ton of Bay Area journalists on there. Um but anyway, so I was on Twitter when that story came out. But I actually saw more people talking about it on Facebook, which is really funny. Oh, yeah, um, Facebook. Like, I forgot about them. Remember when people had conversations about things on Facebook? Yeah, people were – I saw, like, a lot of people fighting about whether this article was, like, helpful or not yes yeah. and whether it was like overstating things or not right and honestly I kind of just watched it going like I'm just glad like this many people are talking about climate change period right you know right I also <laughs> you know? like as far as the scientific precision goes um I certainly get the scientific nuance is important and making sure that things are correct mm -hmm. is important um, and I um, by no means want to like quibble with like whether whatever fact was right or not. Like I no part of me wants to do that. But I am very curious right. about who is the person who needs to know the science down pat. Right. Like needs to know every single nuance. Like it really matters if they know whether the ocean turns you know, bright red or burnt orange at whatever degree of warming. Right. Who is that person who needs to know that in that level of detail, who gets their science from New York Magazine? Exactly. Who the, who's that? Exactly. Right? Who's yes. like, oh, you know where yes. I get all of my science? <laughs> you know what's weird about that too? And like, I'm just, I'm just like kind of like having this realization as you're saying that. I feel like a big part of the, the backlash from some of the scientific community was that before this article, really 
none of the climate reporters had tried to talk about science in any way other than just like a scientific report came out. Here's what it said. Yeah. The end. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like basically climate scientists had sort of been the only ones interpreting the science right. for the public. Right. And here comes David Wallace Wills, who was a newcomer to climate coverage entirely yeah. at that point. Um, doing that too. Yeah. And I think they were like, whoa, 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 hey, ho, yeah. you know. Yeah. I feel like you almost, you really didn't see that much long-form narrative climate journalism before this story came out. Yeah, like you didn't see a lot, and you definitely didn't see a lot of um, stories that were connecting like institutional racism, colonialism, um, and climate, in, especially in like, I mean, you did see it, in some niche publications, but you didn't see it in, in the sort of mainstream publications mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, New York Magazine or The New Yorker or whatever. Yeah. So um, That's actually yeah. a good yeah. uh, segue to another piece that I would call foundational for this these two years. Um, it was a series in Bitch Magazine called The Least Con- Convenient Truth. Um, it's a four-part series by Bonnie Amour. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um And I just want to read a a quick excerpt from it. The it's not race, it's class crowd might have to be reminded that people were once considered property because of their race and were exploited for their capital just like the land they worked. In a capitalist white supremacy, there is no respect for life, just the centricity of whiteness which deems that the economic value of white labor supersedes that of other races, and the effect of capitalism on the land is inconsequential. But all this makes me wonder about the colonizers. I get capitalism, but if your goal is long-term domination, wouldn't you be in favor of environmental sustainability? Turns out, nah, because they knew in the end, people of color would be the ones paying the highest price for the environmental consequences of settler colonialism. Mm. So I, I designated this piece here um, because I, there's been a lot of scholarship on the, co- uh, the connections between climate change and colonialism and slavery and racism, um, but it's generally right. lived in books and scholarly articles. Um, you, didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't see it a lot in um, actual, in journalism, so to speak. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that bitch gave her, (laughs) that sounds strange to say, but bitch magazine gave her, uh, this four part (laughs) series. Um, and you know, I think there are a lot of really great points she made in it. She talks about the connections between, um, infant mortality. She talks about the connections, um, you know, long-term with colonialism and so on and so forth. What struck me as I was reading it was that there was still a tone of was very clear that Bonnie is as much a scholar as she is a journalist. So there was a lot of academic tone Mm -hmm. in there. And I think that that was probably the way that outlets were approaching this type of subject matter was that it was it still felt very heady to people and therefore they sought out academics, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. There also is a tone of snark in this writing that. I both understand and kind of want to tease through a little bit Um, because I think that women are often 
put in positions where we are expected to be snarky with our writing. Right. And right. Yeah. yeah I, I wonder if you've had that experience as well. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a thing that happens where um, women are either expected to sort of keep our opinions or conclusions out of writing entirely and sort of just present the information and let people make up their own minds. Or if we do have an opinion or come to a conclusion, it's we're sort of encouraged to to be like snarky and sassy and whatever, which ultimately has the like, and catty. Yeah. Which ultimately has the effect of undermining the argument that we're trying to make, Yeah, you know? And like, I just don't see that happening with a lot of, um, pieces written by men who are sort of encouraged to seriously investigate issues and critique them in an evidence-based way, yeah, you know? Yeah. And another thing <laughs> like, I noticed yeah. is like when, so when I write, right, we talked about this before, a lot of my pieces are originally, you know, kind of angry or um, mm-hmm. they're the results of panic, to be quite honest. Um, and right. they, my first draft, a lot of the time will sound very snarky. And so when I see women writing about these really heartbreaking subjects, what she's writing about is heartbreaking here. I don't, on my second reading, what I don't, I don't see snark. I see scar tissue because it is really, Mm. really painful. And so I encourage everyone to read these pieces and to like see the pain behind them as much as there is anger because the anger is justified of course and I'm sure she wrote it in the voice that she wanted to write it in but I think there's also a lot of pain behind um behind the anger and behind the sass yeah yeah that's really interesting um I I feel like that is maybe a good segue into this finding middle ground series that um that I think was kind of a key piece in uh 2016 2017 too and it's written by a woman of color and I feel like it it's actually it's interesting because it definitely like race and class come up quite a bit throughout this series but it's never at, like it's never the sort of obvious focus it's they're all narratives and um it was to me this was interesting because this is also like around the time when I think the media was doing what I call the like media Trump apology tour which was like in the wake of the election all these national media outlets were like oh no we've done a terrible job of covering like everything but the coast (laughs) like you know, and they kind of, there were just like tons of these series, both in radio, like NPR was doing it a bunch. And a lot of national outlets were running these like profiles of basically like Trump people, you know, like we need to understand these people. And it's, you know, it's in this very, like lots of problems with it. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of that, Mira Subramanian, who is a great climate journalist and a woman of color, Uh, worked for Inside Climate News on this specific project looking at what's happening with middle America on climate change and how are, you know, people in rural places actually being impacted by climate change and are they seeing it as climate change and what's happening, whatever, in this way that I felt like actually sort of genuinely helped to 
paint a picture of like, look, this is happening whether you believe it or not, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I feel like she also did a good job of, of tying together lots of narratives into one massive series that like really gave you a snapshot of how the country was being affected. So here's, um, here's a bit from one of these pieces, which was um, looking at flooding in North Dakota and how it was impacting um, farmers and sort of looking at this constant cycle of drought and flooding. I walk in the front door of Byron Carter's house as others are entering in the back and Coda, the dog, can't decide which way to direct her barking. I'm in Divide County, North Dakota, but borders seem a little meaningless here. Last summer's drought, which was calamitous for Byron and the other farmers and ranchers now filing into his kitchen, leaked over into Canada, Divide's border to the north and Montana to the west. By April of this year, they're on the cusp of a new season, and Byron has gathered his neighbors, defined as anyone living within a 30-mile radius in this sparsely populated corner of the state, so we can talk about drought and climate change. Mm. So I love this. Like, she she does a really good job, I feel like, of, of um, kind of setting this scene she does. And, and, like, you know, like, really giving you a sense of these people mm-hmm. without doing the thing of, like... Byron is six foot two with sandy blonde hair. Yeah. And like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, you feel so, like you can yeah, still I see him without that level of detail. It's good, right? I know. Initially, when I saw this series announced, I was like, oh, another one of these. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh, God, I'm so glad that they hired Mira to do this because I feel like in the hands of any other writer, it would have been another one of these like Trump apology tour pieces, but she really Mm -hmm. turned it into a real snapshot of what was happening in a way that was helpful. Another piece I wanted to talk about is by Alex Steffen um, in the nearly now, which I think is a medium publication. Um, That's Mm -hmm. the title is uh, the smokestacks come tumbling down, which great title. Yeah. Um, so I don't have like a long excerpt that I want to read from this, just like a couple of snippets, because what Alex does really well is he is a master at reframing the debate. <laughs> he does it really well on mm-hmm. Twitter. If you're not following him, you should be. Um, and I think, didn't he coin the phrase predatory delay? Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us what that That's means him. for folks mm-hmm. who don't know. It's like, it's sort of like the next phase of climate denial. So initially, you know, the oil companies were sort of like, climate change isn't happening at all. And then it became like, well, it's happening, but we're not sure when it's going to happen or how bad it's going to happen. And we don't want to make any sudden movements in the energy system before we have more information. So this idea of like sort of continuing to enable the status quo, you know, well and past the point where it starts to become genuinely dangerous for people. Mm-hmm. And he came up with that term. Yeah. Predatory delay. It's so good, yeah. right? I know. It's so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I want to read a couple of snippets from it. So he, a lot of the time you hear people say 2016 is like the hottest year on record. Alex doesn't do that. Alex says it's one of the hottest years experienced since the dawn of agriculture. 
which oh, <laughs> exactly which like that if that doesn't good. drive it home for you i don't know what the fuck huh. will actually yeah. you would think hottest year on record is like the strongest way you could say that but he found a stronger way to say it which i think is awesome yeah um he also has a way of explaining like economic and industry terms in a way that you can really understand so uh an example of that is Here's a sentence. He says, economists call these taking externalities because externalities sounds better than destruction for profit. It's like a masterful way of reframing that. And like anybody can understand that. He's like, basically what he's saying there is this is not complicated. You can absolutely understand Mm -hmm. this. And another snippet, he says, but specific companies, places, and systems are particularly vulnerable to sudden deep failure when larger systems around them shift. We call them brittle. Brittle systems often do not recover when they break. An ancient forest dried out by years of climate-driven drought is brittle. It can burn to ashes in a firestorm and takes centuries to regrow. Bridges collapse and are not easily raised. Towns are swept away in floods. Islands are lost to rising seas. Mm. Yeah, so good. Yeah, he's just such a good um, linguist, I guess is the word. Um, It's like writer doesn't even get to it. He's just like redefines the whole debate. And that's something we desperately need. It's it's rhetoric, right? Yeah, it's rhetoric. I I, um, guess I was reading, I've been like very interested in that, like the history of rhetoric and like how certain rhetorical frameworks are used and by whom and when it's effective and when it's not. And I think I'm pretty sure that Alex is like, you know, maybe even like a scholar of that mm. because he does. It's like, he's so masterful. Yeah. At it. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing to, to read his work. But um, unfortunately in this piece, I started to have a couple of problems. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So for one, um, I started to feel like at, at different points, he, uh, his audience didn't include me by the way he used we. Um, so yeah, exactly. Like at one point he says like, we take, we all take this capacity for granted. I was like, I don't, and I don't know anyone who does. So I don't think you're talking to me. I was like, Oh, I thought we were like in on it together. And turns out I'm not in it. Um, and then I'm out. Yeah. yeah, That's interesting. That's like a Mm -hmm. shitty feeling when you're, when you're reading something. I think that's something that happens in a lot of climate coverage is this abuse of we, and I, I'll be completely honest. Mm -hmm. I have to police myself with that too. Um, because it's so insidious in our language. Um, so like, but Mm -hmm. it, it just kind of struck me in this piece. Um, another thing that was coming up for me as I was reading it was there was just like all of this, um, this tone of inevitability of the system Mm. will change. It has no choice. And that is, and first of all, I don't, I don't agree with that. Right. Like if all we had to do was be right and then inevitably things would, you know, the course would write itself, right? Like inevitably renewables are obviously the best choice. And so therefore the market has no choice, but to surrender to them. Um, If that were the case, we wouldn't be in the predicament that we're in now. And I also feel like that comes with, you can only say that with a certain level of privilege, right? Because basically Mm -hmm. what that boils down to is all we have to do is be right and then sit back and wait, right? And if that were the case. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's that whole thing of like this. I think, I mean, to me, I think that is like where the, the sort of belief that the system, like the systems that are in place will fix the problem. It's like that. You can only have that belief if the systems that are in place have like pretty much always worked for you. Right. And that's something (laughs) that's kind of like always struck me about the climate space of like, well, we've got our charts, we've got our data, we're right, and we're just going to prove that we're right, right? Like it takes more than just being right right because so many of the biggest atrocities in history have been demonstrably wrong, right? Like slavery was based on shitty science. Yeah. Um, Colonialism was based on shitty science that could have very, and was very easily proven wrong, but that didn't stop it. Sometimes you got to be more than just right. Um, and I, I don't think that Alex in this piece is advocating for us to just like sit back on our heels and do nothing. I mean, I think he's actually a pretty um, vocal advocate for making noise. Um, but I just picked that up this tone of like, it, it's inevitable the market's going to surrender to renewables um, and they just don't know it yet. I picked that up in this piece. And on his broader presence and his broader platform, he certainly advocates for doing more than sitting on your ass and waiting for the windmills to come tumbling down. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But that is just uh, something I would offer for the tone of this piece. Okay, so this one is from Robinson Meyer in The Atlantic. It's called Democrats Are Shockingly Unprepared to Fight climate change. And it basically lays out like that, hi, we need something to address climate mm-hmm. change. Like, we need some framework, some some mix of policies in the same way that like Medicare for all has become a rallying cry for healthcare mm-hmm. or like, um, you know, focusing on the dreamers has become a stand in for immigration reform. Like all of these things, right. you know, we, to- we sort of talk about climate change in this vague way still. If we talk um, about it. So here, if we talk about it at all, right, exactly. Because remember again, in 2016, in the election, you did not have to have a climate policy to run as like the democratic candidate. Yeah. And it did not really come up in any of the presidential debates. And like to go from that to now where like every candidate, the democratic primary has to have a comprehensive climate policy is, is actually like a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, okay, here he is in the Atlantic. Yeah. In some Many Democrats have coalesced around a single phrase, if not quite a policy to accompany it, and promised to deliver it the next time they're in power. And even if some Democrats see Medicare for all as a base play, as a slogan more likely to be deployed in Vermont than Colorado, it remains a policy-focused promise about future governance. The party has similar promises for other issues, too. On immigration, it can promise the DREAM Act. On LGBTQ rights, the Equality Act. I suspect that many voters, including most rank-and-file Democrats, believe that there's a similar strategy on climate change. They think there's some bill waiting in the wings that would address the issue. They trust that Democrats have a legislative plan to resolve climate crisis and that the party only needs to be granted control of Congress to pass it. But nothing of a similar scale exists. And some of the Senate's most vocal Democrats on the issue resist formulating mm-hmm. one. It's so fascinating to me that like that really was the state of play. It was. 
And then just two years all ago. of a sudden, here comes the Green New Deal. Yeah. yeah. It, here comes yeah. the blue wave, and then yeah. here comes the Green New Deal. And also, shout out to Rob yeah. for saying climate crisis in 2017. Seriously, <laughs> that's true. Is like way that might be the, the first. <laughs> totally. That might be like the first use of that in, especially in like a publication like The Atlantic. Um, yeah. I, I, somebody on Twitter can definitely let us know. Um, what's also, I loved about this essay is that reading it was like reorienting. It was like, I don't know if it's the red pill or the blue pill, but like, I felt very ungaslit after I read it because it's, it's a long Mm. essay and he goes through like, how did we get here? (laughs) You know, like what was climate policy like in 08? Like he does talk about Copenhagen, I believe. Um, what was uh, what was climate policy like under Obama? What were we expecting with the next election? Where are we now? Like he really like walks you through it um, and then walks us through like, yeah, but we don't have a roadmap from here. Like, obviously, he doesn't know what's going to happen after November of that year. Um, but yeah. yeah, I if you're feeling confused about where we're at <laughs> and how we got here, like right. very much read this essay. Hard recommend. Um, it's like one of those, oh shit essays. Totally. It is. Yeah. Because I do think that they're, um, oh, well, and I love too, that it, it sort of calls into question this idea that like, oh, the people in charge will know how to fix it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and everybody's sort of just like, somebody's doing this. Right. And then you get to the front of the plane Somebody's and it's a bunch this. of penguins flying the damn thing. <laughs> yes. A bunch of flightless birds yes. in the car. We're just about done with our wrap up of the year and we're going to, we're going to share with you kind of our favorite pieces from this time. So I, I mean, I, I actually feel like, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it was kind of like slow to get started by the time we got all the way through the end of 2017, there were a lot of really great pieces Mm -hmm. to choose from. There really were. And so what we mean by standout piece is basically just like one that really stuck out and resonated with us and that we love. There's no rubric for it. Um, There's no (laughs) rules. There's no nothing. Right. Like I just picked something that made my heart (laughs) sing and made me feel seen and just something I loved. And there are a lot of things I love Mm -hmm. from these years, but you know, you only pick one. So yeah. Yes. Okay, do you want to read yours first? Yeah, sure. I'll go first because a little bit of a disclosure is I kind of made this year, um, this episode 2016 and 2017 for the sole purpose that I got to pick this piece. <laughs> really? That's so cute. So Aww, I, I love really this good. piece it's so, good. so much. Um, it's called, yeah. it's an essay called Inlings. It's by Harriet Riley and it was published in Island Magazine in September in 2016. Um, and it actually kind of gives voice to actually why I avoided reading The Uninhabitable Earth. Reading this report didn't give me a conscious sense of dread like most environmental papers do. Instead, I felt a deep, primal pain, a disturbance in the, a disturbance in the force. That's how I realized that I was in mourning too. 
I'm a climate scientist, but for the past nine months, I hadn't read a thing about climate change. Friends would email me links to articles and I would delete them, telling myself that I was too busy or that I already knew that study. But the truth was, I was avoiding it because all the news was bad. I'd worked on the issue for years, going to UN summits, prepping lab reports, writing articles. I dedicated myself to it night and day for a decade. And every new article felt like a fellow doctor telling me about a cancer patient, how they were getting worse, how they'd been in remission, but it had come back, how it had metastasized, how they had found a new drug, but it wouldn't be on the market for another 10 years, how it was growing and changing and shifting and spreading, and how we had to prepare for the worst. So I stopped reading. I started working on other issues. I slunk away from the bedside because nobody wants to watch their patient die. The Living Planet Index was the first climate paper I'd read all year and sure enough, it led to an eye scratching, skin tearing, dirt in hair rubbing, outpouring of grief. I'm not the only one. We call it a climate depression. Yes, that's a weather joke. And it's the main reason for the unusually high burnout rates amongst environmentalists and sustainability experts. But new research from around the world shows that it's not just professionals who succumb. Kari Nogard, a sociology professor at the University of Oregon, ran a study in which she asked people whose towns had been impacted by climate change to describe how it made them feel. They spoke of fear, frustration, anger, hopelessness, and guilt. One of the most telling responses came from a participant living near a river. It's like, you want to be a proud person, and if you draw your identity from the river, and when the river is degraded, that reflects on you. Climate change destroys your sense of self-worth. Ugh, it's so good. This whole essay is so, so good. It is a masterpiece. It's so it is good. uh First of all, like I'm low key kind of mad at her that she's a scientist. I was just gonna say that that like I'm oh I'm I'm like God, you're a climate scientist and you're like an amazing writer. Like I definitely couldn't just like like, who are you? Yes, I definitely could not like dip into science and be like fucking brilliant at it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And what's um so I I met Harriet at a dinner party and that is how. Um, I found out about this essay and she also introduced me to your podcast, Drew. Oh, really? Um, so, oh. <laughs> and that like, another so reason to love Harriet. Right? Just <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's great people. Um, and this, the way she makes you like, just feel the way she's feeling. And then also in the, in the essay, there's another character, a friend of hers, who's like searching out this, um, the last of a given species. Um, you, you have, you just have to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does this really great job of making you feel what they feel and see what they see and, um, getting to this point of being able to trust hope another time and being able to like find ways to be productive, even when you're in, you know, the throes of the biggest depression, mm-hmm. um, and ways to be ways to cope with it. And also just ways to not run away from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I thought it's just such a gorgeous piece of writing. Yeah. Um, and I go back and read it like all the time. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's so good. 
Um, okay, mm-hmm. mine is uh, this piece from Samanth Subramanian in New York Times Magazine's climate issue in April 2017. It might... Was that their first one? It might have been. I was just going to say that. It might have been their first one. I cannot find confirmation of that. So if anyone knows, give us a shout on Twitter. But um, but it was definitely like, you know, pretty early climate issue. <laughs> Well, this is embarrassing to admit, but I misgendered this writer. I don't know why I saw Samantha and and thought Samantha and then assumed she. So forgive us for the incorrect pronouns in this part of the episode, and we will be more careful next time. It's talking about how Singapore is basically sinking from sea level rise and that the one of the the solutions to this is to um, import a bunch of sand and basically create more land. Um, And I loved it because I feel like it did this thing that I find I think is like really effective in climate narratives, which is like um, telling a very specific and sort of surreal story that really gets at a more universal thing, which is that like the way that humans are trying to address climate change is often absurd and like, mm-hmm. um, and often sort of perpetuates the same kind of problematic thinking that created the problem in the first place. So she like, she never says mm-hmm. those things, mm-hmm. but the story sort of shows you that. Um, So in this Mm -hmm. scene that I'm going to read from, she's going around with this guy who's been helping out with the the sand stuff. And he's like showing her, you know, all of these different areas. Um, And so, uh, okay, so here she is kind of describing what she's seeing. The wind rose and fell in heavy gusts. Lim's hair, tousled even indoors, grew still more animated. He pointed out a man-made hill eastward along the coast from the marina where trucks and earth movers milled about. This was the Changi East Reclamation, more than a thousand hectares of land designed to hold the new airport terminal and its three runways. In trying to edge closer, we must have wandered into sensitive waters. A loudspeaker screamed from the naval base, punctuated by three types of sirens. You are entering a prohibited area. Please clear it now. Lim instructed me to pull at various ropes, and we tacked hurriedly out. A couple of hours after we cast off, we came upon Tikong Island, sitting in the strait between Singapore and Malaysia, owned by the former but nearer the latter. The two countries bickered over reclamation activities here in 2002. It took three years of negotiations before Singapore could proceed. The part of the island where Singapore's army units train was a smoky smudge on the horizon. Our boat nuzzled against a rock wall that marked out reclamation work. The wall began on the northern coast of the island, ran eastward to the sea, and then looped back to a point on the southern coast. In outline, it resembled a porpoise's nose. That's odd, Lim said. There's no one here. No trucks, no security guards, no bulldozers. Maybe they've stopped work because of a shortage of sand. Lim held the boat steady while I waded into the shallows for a better look, careful not to trespass on the island. The rocks underfoot were slick, and I barked my shin. How does it look? Lim called. A few feet from the outer wall was an inner one, and packed between the two was sand. Lovely, pristine sand, the color of milky ovaltine. It was held firm and tight in its sleeve of rock, its surface so level that had I walked on it, I might have been the first visitor on undiscovered land. 
Trapped beyond the inner wall was a low pool of water, yet to be filled in. Around us, the ocean lay idle in the sun, ready to challenge Singapore's ingenuity with its patient, adamant rise. So wow. I loved this because I was, I just, I did, I didn't so read good, this, right? I didn't like I, this one. I, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really, yeah. really good. And I love this last line, I think is so nice that like this, that the ocean is like just sitting there and wait, like, haha, <laughs> right. you guys try me, bitch. Clever. <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite line was pristine sand, the color of milky oval tea. When the last time you heard somebody use yeah, Ovaltine you really in, see a, it. in a climate article? In any article. In a descriptor. I know. I know. It's really good. Yeah. I really liked it. And I liked that it was, you know, about a part of the world that we don't necessarily hear yeah. about that much in sea level rise stories. And, and that it, like, kind of calls into question this idea that, like, ingenuity will exactly you know um, exactly we'll we'll find our way out of this problem or that nature can like somehow be tamed um because like trying to tame it is kind of how we got here so it just exactly that like exactly that we're going to use the same tactic to solve the problem that created it it's like when has that ever worked guys and yet here we are still. She does a, a really great job of showing and not telling. And of yes. this is an, an excellent example of storytelling. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and look at this one more closely. Logically, 2016 wasn't really that long ago, but as we can see here, it really was. Um, And although the story of climate change has gotten so much darker as the impacts have intensified, the storytelling, though, has gotten just so much better. Yeah, it's totally true. And you can see the power of that storytelling feeling the activism, too, from Sunrise Movement to Greta to even the Green New Deal. A lot has changed. Yeah, and 2018 was a very different year. And that's what we're going to get into in our next episode. So listeners, make sure that you look out for that episode. Yes. As a reminder, we're going to do another year in review for 2018 in the next episode. And then the episode after that is going to be 2019 in review. Then in 2020, we're going current. (laughs) We'll be coming out every two weeks. Um, And if you like what you heard so far, make sure that you leave us a review, please. Um, And if you don't, maybe keep that shit to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Links to all the articles we discussed in this episode will be in the notes. And you can find them on our Twitter. Yeah, we're trying to, uh, you know, keep it updated, keep current articles coming out. Um, And if you're not following us on Twitter, you can fix that. Um, You can find us at at Real Hot Take. Um, You can also find me at at Mary Hegler. That's H-E-G-L-A-R. And you can find Amy at at Amy Westervelt. Um, We have very creative Twitter handles. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. It's true. We really do. All right. We'll talk to y'all soon. Please send us your favorite articles from 2018 at our Twitter handle. And looking forward to talking to you again. Yay. See you next time. Bye. Hot Take is written and produced by Mary Anais Hegler and me, Amy Westervelt. It's distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. 
Our theme song is New Frontier by Flashing Lights. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes plural, with your questions about climate storytelling or articles you'd like to see discussed on the show. Thanks for listening. 